Welcome to Religion and Global Challenges, the podcast of the Cambridge Interfaith Program that is brought to you by the Faculty of Divinity from the University of Cambridge. My name is Marlene Schäfers and I am a British Academy Newton International Fellow at the Faculty. Today's podcast is the third in our series on the politics of martyrdom. In the last episode, we heard from Dr. Mamria Rashid about how martyrdom becomes a project of effective management for the Pakistan army. In this episode, we will retain the geographic focus on the Indian subcontinent, but turn towards the afterlives of its anti-colonial history. My name is Chris Moffat. I'm a lecturer in South Asian history at Queen Mary University of London. I completed my PhD uh, at the University of Cambridge, in fact, so it's a particular um, privilege to be part of this podcast. Uh, I was part of a wider cohort of PhD students who were working on questions of violence, anti-colonialism, political thought uh, in 20th century India. Chris is the author of India's Revolutionary Inheritance, Politics and the Promise of Bhagat Singh, which was published with Cambridge University Press in 2019. The book investigates the manifold afterlives of the Indian revolutionary Bhagat Singh, who was executed for his anti-colonial activism by the colonial authorities in 1931, and has since become venerated as a martyr figure across India. I met Chris to discuss the unruly inheritance of this revolutionary martyr, who is mobilized by a wide variety of actors across the political spectrum in India today, all the way from the socialist left to the nationalist right. We talked about where this promiscuity of Bhagat Singh might stem from, the difficulty of fixing the meaning of sacrifice, and what all this can tell us about the ability of the dead to become a force to be reckoned with in the present. But first off, I asked Chris to introduce us to the figure of Bhagat Singh and about what makes this revolutionary and his ongoing afterlives such a compelling object of study. I came to Bhagat Singh initially as a student who was interested in histories of nationalism, of anti-imperialism, and revolutionary politics in 20th century. Uh, and as you may know, late colonial India was an incredibly vibrant place in terms of fostering new political thoughts, uh, new political action, and so appeared to me a particularly compelling site for thinking about resistance, about the meaning of freedom, about power, the state, the self, the collective, these kind of big questions. And I was drawn to Bhagat Singh as a figure who enters this terrain of politics under the shadow of both Lenin and Gandhi. So he was born in 1907 outside Lealpur in Punjab, uh, which is in today Pakistan. He's swept up at a young age into the mass movement that was inaugurated by uh, Gandhi against British rule in 1920, but he's also greatly inspired by the Bolshevik Revolution and the new age, this new world that it seems to promise. So in the mid-1920s, he becomes involved in a number of underground revolutionary organizations. In 1928, he is involved in the assassination of a police officer in Lahore. In 1929, a few months later, he and his comrade Batukeshwar Dutt throw a bomb into the Legislative Assembly in New Delhi, which was the heart of colonial government at the time. It was at the precise moment that the Assembly was passing some repressive trade union legislation. 
And the, the bomb was designed as a smoke bomb. It doesn't kill anyone. Uh, it's meant to register a protest. And indeed, Bhagat Singh and, and, and Dutt, they throw pamphlets into the smoke and the pamphlet declares that it takes a loud voice to make the deaf hear. And in this, they're actually citing uh, a French anarchist, Auguste Vélant, who did a similar sort of action in the Chamber of Deputies in, in the late 19th century under the same justification, right? So Bhagat Singh and Dutt surrender themselves to the police. They intend to use the courtroom as a platform to spread their revolutionary ideals, but they are eventually connected to this assassination in Lahore, and the colonial government opens this much broader conspiracy case that results in Bhagat Singh and two other revolutionaries being hanged to death on 23rd of March, 1931. So Bhagat Singh was only 23 years old. And what's important here, I think, for Bhagat Singh's story and also for our conversation today is that he is seen to accept this fate, right? He faces death without fear. There are many stories of him singing a song on his way to the gallows, of kissing the hangman's noose, uh, of shouting in Zindabad, or long live revolution, with his final breath. And so this is a death that doesn't invite mourning or sadness, right, but action, sort of response. And I think we see from fragments of Bhagat Singh's writing in prison that he saw his death as a way to awaken Indian youth, right, to draw them to revolution, to demonstrate the kind of power and glory of, of the revolutionary cause. And so Bhagat Singh is recalled in India today as Shaheed Azam, as, as the great martyr. And he's celebrated across the political spectrum as this icon of youthful commitment, of heroic self-sacrifice against, you know, tyranny, against abuses of power. And he's a sort of ubiquitous figure, you know, appearing on t-shirts, on bumper stickers, there are statues to him, he's the subject of many films, he's kind of widely popular. And so what began to interest me as I started my research in the early 2010s in, in Delhi, in Punjab, across North India, was that for many of my interlocutors, Bhagat Singh was not simply a figure of the past, right? He was uh, not just someone from this colonial period now long gone, but someone who continues to resonate today in the present, whose example might still be relevant for politics. And more than this, many articulated their experience of a debt to the martyred revolutionary. This idea that in his martyrdom, in that final call to revolution, Bhagat Singh left his followers with a task to complete. Right? Something that's been left unfinished or has been abandoned and for which the dead man continues to call people to account. And so for me, this raised a lot of interesting questions about the relationship between sacrifice and politics and specifically the relationship between anti-colonial histories and, and post-colonial politics. Um, you briefly mentioned that he's considered a, a martyr in today's India or by, by your interlocutors. And so I wonder if the fact that he's considered a martyr, how that relates uh, to him being such an attractive figure for, as you show in your book, such a wide variety of social and political movements. So he's, what I grasp from your book is that he's really revered from the left to the right by political movements that might seem quite incompatible otherwise, and yet they revere the same figure. And I wonder how, you know, if you could zoom in a little bit on the fact of this status as a, a martyr figure, how that makes him a kind of promiscuous figure in political terms. So there are two ways to answer that question. I think one is to point to 
the fact that he has died at such a young age, right? It just leaves a blank canvas. And indeed, a lot of popular histories or biographies of Bhagat Singh ask those, you know, what if questions. If Bhagat Singh had lived, he would have done this or he would have joined this party. He would have stood up against such and such abuse of power. But I think there is another way to answer the question which speaks to that wider appeal of martyrdom and heroic death. Right. Uh, and when I was researching this work, I was interested in the literary scholar Alex Huhn's work on sacrifice and his suggestion that the person who sacrifices themselves for a cause in some way relinquishes control over their death. Right. By which he means by dying, you kind of lose the capacity to possess. Right. And so the event of your death is left entirely in the hands of the living who try to incorporate it or mediate the effects of death in different ways. But where I differentiate from this is in this concept of afterlives or what I talk about in the work is the way Bhagat Singh haunts the present as this sort of uh, specter of unfinished business, of a revolution left unfinished, of a struggle caught halfway. Right? And so I don't believe that his death is really entirely left in the hands of the living. I'm, I'm interested in exploring actually how what I talk about in the book is the vertigo caused by Bhagat Singh's example of self-sacrifice poses um, problems for incorporation and representation. And so this is really linked to the nature of his martyrdom, his self-sacrifice, which is not designed to sort of found a new community as is familiar from Christian traditions of martyrdom, right? Nor is it about defending the integrity of a community that already exists. So as you might see from other kind of nationalist uh, struggles or wars of liberation. But what I find interesting about Bhagat Singh is, as I mentioned, his death is designed to sort of incite action, to incite a community, to shake it from stasis, stir it from slumber, whatever you want to say. And, and so it's really about unhinging a community, right? Calling others to take up his fight. And so I think about it in a sort of non-foundational potential where what martyrdom sets up as valuable is this struggle of politics itself in that kind of final call inkalavs in the bad long live revolution revolution kind of continuing so this is not an easy inheritance it's a vertiginous one it has that sense of vertigo that i mentioned it's demanding and the book that i've written on bhagat singh is interested in the very different ways that living communities respond to that task either through sort of affirming and escalating that sort of revolutionary urge or seeking to tame it, contain it as something more manageable, something less disruptive, something that fits with an existing national story. And this is, you know, what we see across the, the differentiation that we see across the variety of social and political movements that you've mentioned. So can you tell us a little bit more, maybe a few concrete examples about, you know, how that uh, call to action manifests in contemporary India, what these different political movements do when they're drawn Bhagat Singh, how he appears um, and how people interact with that inheritance? So maybe the first thing to say there is that my work departs from some of the existing or most of the existing scholarship on revolutionary politics in India, which is concerned with identifying the real Bhagat Singh, who he was, what was his specific political program, what specific type of future was he pursuing. 
And I'm not, you know, I, I still kind of build on that work. It's important to me. I am not denying it's important. And indeed, much of it has been authored by very committed uh, scholars. I'm thinking of people like Jagmohan Singh or Chamanlal, who are resisting the invocation of Bhagat Singh by people who they feel he would not have tolerated politically in his own life, right? For instance, the way that he is upheld or honored as a brave young patriot by right-wing Hindu nationalists or brand of politics that he directly critiqued in his later writings. But I suppose the, the, the opening problematic for my own work was why, if Bhagat Singh was indeed a figure of the left, someone inspired by Marx and Lenin, someone who called explicitly for abolishing inequality, abolishing the exploitation of man by man. Why is it that, exactly as you say, Marlena, why does he appeal to such a wide variety of social and political movements who often have very contradictory aims? And not simply appeal to them, but animate this active sense of responsibility. So I wanted to take seriously that promiscuity. And for me, the most useful way to grapple with this wide-ranging appeal, which happens from the sort of Maoist left to mainstream politicians to Khalistani secessionists, Sikh secessionists, was to do so not in terms of Bhagat Singh's specific political program, but in interrogating the promise that he represents. And that's kind of alluded to in, in the subtitle of my book, The Promise of Bhagat Singh. In understanding this promiscuity across the political spectrum, less important for me are his ideas for the future than his way of being in the present, in the context of oppression, of injustice, of tyranny, corruption. And so I'm interested in the appeal of Bhagat Singh as someone who's uncompromising in his ideals, who's fearless, who's charismatic, and courageous. And I think that this desire for courage and commitment and a critique of compromise, the fact that it remains appealing to such a variety of political movements today says something about India's present. I think that these qualities, which he demonstrates throughout his life in different ways, are confirmed in his willingness to face death for his cause, in that sort of act of heroic self-sacrifice, but they're also foregrounded in his afterlives because of martyrdom and because of sacrifice. And I was thinking here, I refer to in my work to Faisal Devji's work on, on, on sacrifice, and he talks about the paradox of sacrificial action in that it centers the human instrument, the dying body, over kind of principle or cause. And so it kind of, it can obscure the principle or cause behind sacrifice and thus leave the objective of, of sacrifice in doubt because it emphasizes this sort of individual action over collective politics. And I think there is a sort of individualist streak to Bhagat Singh's afterlives, the way in which his call is interpreted as a responsibility to take individual action against injustice rather than through institutions or parties. And this is, you know, something I talk about as the non-foundational potential of Bhagat Singh. Bhagat Singh is this figure of dissensus or disruption rather than someone who is involved in foundational projects projects of forming parties or, or states and, and and this was actually something that Bhagat Singh was criticized for in the 1930s by communist groups in India but I think we can kind of take um, a different approach on it here. I think what's really valuable about you know your approach to this is that um, it shows us 
the way in which a concept like martyrdom and sacrifice, you know, becomes mobilized within different political movements and within for different for the sake of different political ideologies. And it I find it a useful move away from a lot of the literature that we have on martyrdom, which is so much focused on martyrdom in Islam. So there's a lot of literature on martyrdom as a specific feature of uh, political radical quote-unquote Islam today. Nevertheless, obviously the, the figure of martyrdom does retain some sort of religious, spiritual, or even just otherworldly associations. And I find it quite challenging or interesting the way in which here that then becomes declinated within a socialist, secular kind of, you know, political ideology. So what are your thoughts on how martyrdom, the shaheed, resonates with certain religious ideas and how that becomes translated in, into a secular field of political action? Maybe I can link this back to what I was saying about the way in which the living seek to incorporate or grapple with self-sacrifice. And I think part of Bhagat Singh's power is linked precisely to the way that his heroic death is approximated or filtered through religious tropes. And these are seen primarily in the visual domain. So Bhagat Singh and his comrades are very prominent subjects um, in popular prints and posters and calendar art in the 1930s, but also, you know, up into the present. Uh, and this has been documented by scholars like Christopher Pinney or Sumati Ramaswamy, Kama McLean. And in these images, the devotion and courage of the revolutionary martyr is represented in a number of ways. You know, they might be portrayed as moths to a flame, drawing on these Sufi tropes of denial of self, of annihilation, of banna. But there are also references to tropes from Sikh martyrologies, right? The game of love where one's head is offered on a plate. And there's a lot of images of Bhagat Singh offering his decapitated head to Bharat Mata, the mother India, the kind of personification of the nation as a mother goddess, right? So it's very much about the way in which that death and the excess of self-sacrifice is tamed and grappled with through these familiar tropes and also, you know, given a wider audience because of them. And Sumati Ramaswamy, who I mentioned, talks about this as a sort of visual pedagogy in which young Indian males are exhorted to take pleasure in sacrificing themselves for the, the mother goddess, for the nation. And Penny also draws attention to how these images draw attention to the effective and libidinally charged dimension of self-sacrifice, which is again also invested with religious tropes. But this entanglement of Bhagat Singh's afterlives with conventional religious tropes opens a complicated story, as you've alluded to, Marlena, in that one of Bhagat Singh's most famous essays is called Why I'm an Atheist, and it tracks his departure from uh, his roots, his father was a member of a Hindu reformist group, the Arya Samaj, his mother was a Sikh, uh, and Bhagat Singh was raised a Sikh, he only cut his hair following the Lahore assassination uh, and the need to kind of disguise himself to go into hiding. But in this essay, which he writes in 1931, uh, or it's published in 1931 at least, but he writes it in prison, he talks about his departure from what he calls mysticism and blind faith, his embrace of, of realism or reason. And he talks about that in relation to his impending execution. So we have this 23-year-old in prison noting 
that there is a sort of peace of mind that some religions give to those who are facing death. And he, he talks about, and I'll kind of read maybe a quote from it, a Muslim or a Christian who can look forward to paradise, a Hindu who might expect to be reborn a king. He writes, but what am I to expect? I know the moment that the rope is fitted around my neck and the rafters removed from under my feet. That will be the final moment. That will be the last moment. I, or to be more precise, my soul, as interpreted in the metaphysical terminology, shall all be finished there. Nothing further. A short life of struggle, with no such magnificent end, shall in itself be the reward if I have the courage to take it in that light. So there's kind of a sense of loneliness here, but it is important to situate Bhagat Singh's approach in this approach to death in this particular early 20th century moment in global politics, which he was familiar with through his sort of voracious reading and study. And Simone Asani talks about the very modernity of the idea that death might change the world rather than redeem it or save it in that theological sense. And I think this is a feature of many other modern militants. And we see it, for instance, explicitly in Ireland in the 1916 rising, in hunger strikes that are taking place in which Indian revolutionaries are following closely. We see it in the Russian revolutions in the sense that sacrifice is needed or inevitable as part of changing the world. And so situating Bhagat Singh there is also important. The essay, Why I'm an Atheist, has become a contentious part of his afterlives. And there are arguments, there are historians who suggest that he returned to Sikhism before death. And, and also, you know, as a sort of side note, Bhagat Singh is not really commemorated in Pakistan, where he lived his political life and was executed in Lahore, which was then part of colonial India, but after partition was part of Pakistan. Part of the reason that opponents to commemorating him as a son of the soil, as, as part of that urban history, is because he is an atheist, but also because he is referred to as Shahid Azam. And this kind of language of Shahid is seen to be reserved for a particular sort of martyr figure, as you've kind of alluded to, Marlene, in your question. Yeah, and this is something that we actually talked about in the previous episode um, with Maria Rashid, where she explains how in Pakistan there has been this state effort taken on, particularly by the army, to um, ingrain the terminology of the martyr, the shaheed, really within an Islamic framework in making that sacrifice for the nation a sacred aspect of of a militarist nationalist culture, basically. So that actually speaks very nicely to our previous episode. So as you were as you were talking, I was thinking that in a way then, you know, also your book contributes to further unfolding these manifold afterlives, right, of, uh, that Bhagat Singh has in this world rather than in some otherworldly afterlife. And one of the things that you say, I think somewhere in the book, perhaps in the introduction, uh, you say that your book is not a history of reception, but a history of how the dead call the living to account. And so you've already, you know, alluded to that uh, somewhat, but, you know, I think a lot of people might also think of your work uh, within the frame of either reception, history of reception, but also memory studies, I guess, is another sort of prominent field that, you know, looking at the afterlives of this one particular figure could easily be slotted into. But could you explain a little bit more of how you see your approach differing from this memory studies approach or a history of reception kind of approach? Maybe I'll start with reception and then think about memory studies. I think the answer is in part in my use of that 
concept of afterlives, which has been sort of one of the organizing concepts of my work. I know, Marlena, it's also something you're very much engaged with. And for me, there are two different ways to think about afterlives in politics. The first is the manner in which the living kind of willfully conjure the dead, appropriating them as resources or symbols to serve their, their own politics in the present. The second is the more interesting for me possibility that the dead might themselves conjure politics through this idea of weighing down on the living, of calling them to account, of calling them to responsibility. And that's how I kind of see the difference between a history of reception, which is that first approach, that kind of looking at how the living willfully conjure the dead, and the possibility of, of a haunting, which is the second. And by haunting, I don't mean that we have to admit that ghosts are actually existing, that Bhagat Singh is kind of this spectral figure, but rather to signal this experience of the present that departs from that, you know, historicist idea of a kind of linear sequence between past, present and future. And so I think this is what I see happening with Bhagat Singh. You know, again, it's not that there is some spectral vision appearing to people, although this has been a common trope in a lot of film depictions and visual depictions where Bhagat Singh actually is portrayed as this ghostly figure who smiles approvingly or disproving or frowns disprovingly at the present. But I do think that the dead revolutionary's gaze continues to weigh upon the present as a reminder of paths not taken, of revolutions unfinished, of freedoms compromised. And so my work is not really interested in Bhagat Singh as a symbol or memory that is used or abused or appropriated. And I'm very careful, perhaps not entirely successfully, but I tried to be careful about not using that sort of language of use or appropriation in my work. I, I wanted to explore instead how Bhagat Singh appears time and time again as this effective and demanding interlocutor, this instigator for politics, even, you know, 90 years after his death. So he's effective because his approach to power is still seen to be relevant, that kind of courage and uncompromising action. And he's demanding because living communities, as I suggested earlier, who celebrate him, experience his presence as an incitement to action, right? They experience this sort of sense of owing something to the dead revolutionary to carry on his fight. And this is, again, to throw kind of another concept in, this is also why I'm interested in inheritance which is in my title as India's revolutionary inheritance, I understand this not simply as, again, this logic of succession of what comes after, but as an untimely interference in the present, a sense of responsibility to that which is no longer present, which no longer exists in a physical or living form. So to relate it to memory studies more directly, I guess, again, the question for me was always, what does Bhagat Singh mean for politics in the present? So what possibilities or pathways does the martyred revolutionary help to illuminate rather than simply thinking about the different ways he's recalled or represented? Um, and Afterlives, again, allows us to approach the past as something that's turbulent and disruptive. And for me, personally, this stood in stark contrast to a lot of the literature in memory studies, which... I know this is an oversimplification, but many of the main texts emerge from the European context. They often focus on questions of trauma, on mourning, on, on working through the past. 
And that didn't seem to me to fit what I was interested in here. I think there's also methodological questions about what it means to remember Bhagat Singh. He was part of a clandestine political organization. He was not primarily a public figure. He only became one when he was uh, hidden behind the walls of a prison, right? There's only a handful, I think four known photographs. And I argue in the book then that Bhagat Singh's appeal, even in his life, was already kind of phantasmal or spectral in that it was filtered through rumors, through retellings, exaggerations, fragments of writings and speeches. One other thing that I wanted to ask you is, you know, in the book you look at different forms or different media in which Bhagat Singh makes an appearance. So um, you mentioned films. I think you look at theater performances and parts of the book. And in one chapter, you look specifically at um, monuments and memorials. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about this specific form, this specific medium, material objects in which Bhagat Singh appears in contemporary India. And, you know, how you see monuments and memorials as one specific way of dealing with the inheritance, with the call to action that Bhagat Singh emits. And given that just over this last year, we've had so many heated debates about colonial monuments and the task to decolonize history, would you be able to f reflect from your study of monuments on these kind of debates that have been going on recently? I'm glad you asked that because I've been really interested in these debates around statues and memorials and <laughs> trying to, I mean, the book, because of the sort of long period of that company's academic publishing you know a lot of the research was done and early drafts were written before let's say 2015 when these debates around statues started to kind of take a global form because of the the protests against the Cecil Rhodes statue at the University of Cape Town uh, in South Africa and and have obviously continued in different forms since and as you say especially over the last year One way to think about my work in relation to that is that we have seen a very public critique of statues that we don't like, villains from the past. I'm using that we in a very, I know a very kind of open-ended way, but hopefully that is, you know, acceptable. And I guess my chapter on memorials and statues might be seen as a sort of provocation to also think about a critique of statues that we do like or statues of figures that we do think are worth celebrating or we might accept as, you know, speaking to the present in some way. And so to sort of unpack this, India is, especially North India, is dotted with statues and memorials to Bhagat Singh. There are hundreds of them, right? Most of them are small, concrete structures in rural chalks, roundabouts. But there is also, you know, there's a monumental bronze statue installed in New Delhi's parliament complex outside the very building that he bombed in 1929. And other kind of statues in urban centers that organize public squares. These are often the beginning points or end points for rallies. Bhagat Singh is often portrayed on his own, in a trilby cap, sometimes in uh, a Sikh turban, sometimes with a book, sometimes with a gun, sometimes with the two revolutionaries that he was hanged with, Sukhdev Tapar and Shivaram Rajguru. So you have this kind of monumental landscape. I was reluctant to take 
this for granted as evidence of a lively kind of memorial culture or memory culture around Buckinson. So I was interested instead to think about the relationship that such statues establish or curate with the dead, right? The political consequences of building a statue of memorialization, especially when we're thinking about revolutionary histories or unfinished revolutions. In this chapter, I kind of talk about the anthropologist Vijayanti Rao's uh, description of the memorial's double bind. This idea that the memorial both gives history visibility in public space, but it also delimits the experience of that history. It, it gives it a kind of uh, concrete form. And I think this is relevant for the discussion of haunting. Rao talks about the role of the statue in suppressing or preventing the sort of intrusion of the past into the present. And so from my account, which sees Bhagat Singh as this destabilizing, dissensual figure, I became interested in this containing role of the statue. And so going along with that language of haunting, I talk about statues to Bhagat Singh as a form of exorcism, right? Not as some kind of occult ritual, but a way to get rid of the ghost or to tame the ghost, to give the dead revolutionary a stable home, a kind of tomb of sorts. And I think this was backed up by some of the ethnographic work I was doing at major memorial sites to Bhagat Singh in North India, where I was kind of, you know, trying to think about how to understand the emptiness of these places, the kind of infrequency of visitors, the absence of any real veneration or genuflection amongst those who did visit, and indeed the general disrepair of statues, memorial complexes. So statues and memorial sites do or can provide a ways for the living to negotiate a sense of responsibility to the dead, right? They can provide a tangible means through which people can feel they are honoring Bhagat Singh. But at the same time, I wanted to think about what this desire for permanence, for official recognition, for public visibility means in relation to that vertigo of a revolutionary inheritance that I mentioned before. And here, I think we return to this question of the double bind, that emphasis on binding, wherein the statue acknowledges the dead man, but honors him as a figure of the past, as part of a sequence that is finished, something that is foundational, but not actively demanding in the present. That kind of leads me in the book to think about other ways that Bhagat Singh is animated in public space. And as, as you mentioned, Marlena, I became interested particularly in the public historical role of political theater, street theater in India, which is long associated with uh, a leftist politics. It's informed by South Asian traditions of traveling storytellers. And Bhagat Singh's life remains a really common topic for these traveling troops. And across Indian Punjab in, in particular, but also in Pakistani Punjab, theater troops will appear in public squares and marketplaces, uh, in some cases outside factories, and perform fragments of the life of Bhagat Singh, right? And the aim is not to produce some sort of genuflection to a statue or kind of um, that sort of sentimental approach, but to, to kind of translate the revolutionary's life and thought to the obstacles that are faced by the audience in the present. So it's a public history that demands that active spectatorship. And it's premised on, you know, in the precise opposite to the sort of solidity of the statue. It's based on these brief but demanding interruptions in public space. It demands direct eye contact. It's characterized by an engagement with local illusions. And so it resists that kind of routinization or invisibility of the monument. 
And so I think this is one way that we can think about uh, alternatives to statues, which rather than trying to tame Bhagat Singh's intrusions into the present, seek to radicalize them, to translate them, to channel them in different ways. And from street theater, we can also think about protests in general as mobile monuments, as you may know, and at the time of our discussion today, there have been these massive farmers protests taking place around Delhi, months of groups occupying major highways into the capital to protest changes to the regulation of agricultural markets, which would um, really imperil the livelihoods of so many. And amidst this encampment, there is a library named after Bhagat Singh, right? His, his image is ubiquitous, and it's kind of these transient acts of commemoration and invocation of conjuring that navigate a turbulent present that really interests me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Religion and Global Challenges about the afterlives of the Indian revolutionary Bhagat Singh and how death may become a force that mobilizes and incites the living to political action. This was the last episode within our mini-series about the politics of martyrdom, at least for now, but do make sure to check out our previous episodes in this series. One of those was about the rise of new martyr cults in contemporary Russia and Cyprus, and how this relates to new forms of moral conservatism, and the second one looked at martyrdom and affect in the Pakistan army. For all episodes, you can find more information, including recommended readings if you want to dig in deeper, on our website at interfaith.cam.se.uk slash podcast. Next up is a series of episodes about everyday encounters with religious difference, so stay tuned and make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>